0: open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We're doing quite a bit of Bible reading together today. I pray that you have your Bibles. If not, if you've got the smartphone, get a good Bible app on your phone. We're studying today, of course, a series entitled Things to Come. And this series comes to us from our working our way through Matthew chapters 24 and 25. We've been recently working through chapter 24, and today we want to take a little bit fuller look at some of the things that Jesus identifies there in Matthew 24. You'll remember our setting uh, from Matthew 24, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives discussing questions with his disciples concerning his return, concerning the end of the age, And as we started last week, very specifically, Jesus talks about this time that he describes as great tribulation. And uh, we've tried to kind of identify what that is. We we think through the scriptures and the book of Daniel that Jesus references that this time of tribulation is a seven-year period of global events and world tribulation just before the return of Christ. Jesus said that there has not been uh, since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be a time like these seven years that are described as the tribulation. Last week, we kind of started our part one of the tribulation. Today, I want to finish talking about the tribulation in part two. We're looking at four different elements as they relate to this time frame Jesus is referencing. We talked about world powers last week. We talked and identified about the, the ten king empire that we would look for in the in the time of tribulation, a new world power, or maybe a, a new world government, a one world government, and, and a, cer- a certain ruler coming into power, the Antichrist, who begins to, uh, actually animated by Satan himself, begins to establish a world kingdom. And we studied those Possibilities of world empires as they will emerge in the tribulation. We also looked in some detail at the nation of Israel and the significance of Israel as it relates to the time of tribulation, the significance of their regathering and being back in the land. Some of the events described within the tribulation require Israel to be there and to have even a temple to be, you know, and practicing worship there. And so the fact that they are there and the fact that they they would love to build a temple and have plans to do so, that seems to see, uh, you know, like the stage is being set for this time of tribulation. It's going to be a time of great persecution for the Jewish people, but it's also going to be a time of great salvation and many coming to faith in Christ during the tribulation. Now I'd like to look at today kind of two more items and we'll finish up our study on the tribulation. We want to talk about world events, and, and, and by this I don't mean governments and powers, but more what's going on in the earth. What's going on? Even you know, uh, will there be any kind of cataclysmic type of events that the the Bible describes relating to the to the tribulation? World events, and then finally and fourthly, I want to take a look at the Church of Jesus Christ, the Bride of Christ. What is Our place and role. Where are we located during this great time of tribulation and trouble coming to the earth? All right, so let's look at world events. What I need to kind of remind you about the tribulation is that it is a time when God is pouring out his wrath and his judgment upon the earth against a God hating, Christ-rejecting world. Today we're living in an age of grace, uh, an age where God, through the, the, the ministry of the gospel, is bringing believers into this entity he calls his church, the body of Christ. And so even though we see horrible things going on in the world, we see God restraining, don't we? We see God kind of holding himself back and also continuing to move in grace through the gospel. But God also tells us in the word that 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 age comes to an end. That time of grace has a time limit on it. And then comes a time of judgment a time of uh, bringing the earth into reconciliation, a time of holding those that have rejected Christ accountable. The book of Revelation, complex book, not easy to understand, but we're going to be looking at some verses today that I think do give us a a pretty good idea of what's going to be going on during the time of the tribulation. Let me give you a little setting here before we dive into chapter 6. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the apostle John, you'll remember, he has this vision and Jesus begins to give him instruction concerning letters that are to be written to the churches, right? The church in Philadelphia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Sardis, seven churches. John pens out these Words of instruction, warning, encouragement, correction, whatever is needed. It's all about the church and Jesus speaking through the apostle to his church. Then in chapter four, there's a change. The letters and the times for the churches come to an end. And he now says, listen, I want to show you now things that will come after these things. And we'll look a little bit deeper in this later on in our study this morning. But this next stage, John is now translated to heaven. He sees sees this heavenly scene, right? The throne. He sees the worship of God. And then he sees this scroll that is in the hand of God. And this scroll is, is sealed with seven seals and no one is worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. Whatever this scroll represents and and the future that is revealed in the scroll, there is none found worthy except one. As As John is mourning that there is no one, one steps onto the stage in heaven, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ himself. And this worship begins to erupt in heaven. Worthy is the Lamb he is able to open the scroll. He has bought back the earth by his own work of redemption. He is able to judge and rule the earth. We have found one worthy of the scroll and all that it contains concerning establishing his kingdom. And it's none other than Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful passage. I mean, if you just want to kind of get a little goosebumps as you read it, it's like, wow, he steps onto the scene and you can kind of just see the the image of, of the Lion of Judah, Jesus Christ coming and all of heaven acknowledging that he has arrived and he is able to open the scroll and finish the redemptive work concerning the earth. And from there, he begins to open the scroll. As I mentioned, it's sealed with seven seals. And as each one of the seals is opened, John is given a vision of the judgments that are poured out upon the earth. And there are seven seals that are opened. The seventh seal actually is the introduction to the next phase of judgments. And it brings us into seven trumpets. And then the seventh trumpet brings us into... Seven bowls. I have a, a graph for that. I think the guys are, you can kind of see just a visual. Seven seals that open the scroll. The seventh seal introduces seven trumpets that are to be sounded. The seventh trumpet introduces seven bowls that are going to be poured out. All of this describing judgments and events that are taking place on, in the world during the tribulation. And they grow in intensity and severity as you work your way through. We're going to take a look at just a surface level of these things this morning. Let me warn you, this is, a, this is somewhat heavy as we look through these things. To begin to imagine these, these images on the earth can be a little frightening, a little overwhelming. And in one sense, it's kind of like, gosh, I... I was hoping Sunday morning would have something better than this gloom that, that we can expect on the earth. Well, I'm going to end with something that I think will be good. <laughs> but here's the thing. This is what the scripture gives us. God has shown us these things. There ought to be a sense of accountability before God. There ought to be this understanding that, look, humanity, mankind is not, just not free to live as he wants forever without any accountability to the God who made the heavens and the earth. Listen, he's still the Lord of all. It may look like the world is just running its own course, but that's only while God allows it so that he can bring in a harvest of those that would come to faith through the gospel. God is going to ultimately bring all things into subjection to himself, right? Jesus is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God until when? Until he makes his enemies his footstool. So what we see in the book of Revelation is what we believe is the future uh, judgment and God bringing to order, bringing to justice, those that have rejected him upon the earth. With that in mind, let's just take a look at a few of the seals. And I said, this will be something of a cursory look, a highlight, high level look. But you'll get the picture, I think, pretty quick. Revelation chapter six, verse one. Now I saw when the lamb, Jesus, opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. Verse 7, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades followed him. And power was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. This is just the first four seals. You've probably heard of the the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Here they are. These judgments that are identified as horsemen coming to the earth. Now, we see this in kind of figurative imagery, but we need to understand that these things will be fulfilled literally. These are not just spiritual kind of things happening that nobody really can understand or know. No, this is going to, these things are going to happen upon the earth in a literal way. They're being represented in the spirit by horsemen, but they're coming to do literal things upon the earth. And this is the kind of events that will be taking place during the tribulation. This white horse, a new world leader coming onto the scene, quite possibly a reference to the Antichrist who's been given a crown to go out and conquer other nations. He goes out to conquer and conquering. We know that the world will come under the rule of one Uh, prominent ruler who will be animated by Satan himself. And he's given time, he's given a place to do that. That's part of the judgment, allowing this conquering to take place. It says he has a bow and yet no arrows, as if to say, although he has military power, he does not use it, but rather through political maneuvering, he gains that power. And so it is a time of upheaval and change. Nations will be Uh, you know, moving in terms of who's in power, global upheaval. That's one of the judgments. The next horse is the red horse. He comes and peace is taken from the earth and people are now killing one another. It, It will be, again, just a time of civil unrest, maybe civil war. This horse comes with a sword, a strong military force. There may be conflicts and much, much peace is absent from the earth. The black horse, the third horse, he comes and seems to indicate a food shortage. He comes with scales measuring what you would have to pay to get enough wheat for a meal. And it's a day's wage just to buy one meal for the day. A shortage of food, a shortage of grain in the earth, a shortage of Of resource, and it brings with it famine and death. The pale horse, death himself, through violence, through hunger, through sickness, even through the beasts of the earth. Listen, 25% of the earth's population dies when this fourth horseman rides. Over, well over a billion people will take place. This is all condensed. Within a time of tribulation that Jesus said, not like anything the earth has seen or ever will. And you can appreciate that Jesus, when Jesus says great tribulation, he means great tribulation. These are just the beginnings of what God tells us in the book of Revelation. As I mentioned, that seventh seal would actually introduce the next level of judgments, the seven trumpets. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 8. And let's take a look again, just at a few of the trumpet sounds and what they bring. And I'll pick it up in verse seven, Revelation eight and verse seven. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood and they were thrown to the earth And a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10, then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, like a burn, uh, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wor- Wormwood, and many may- men died from the water because it was made bitter, poisonous. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, And a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Wow. The first three trumpets sound and it sound it looks pretty bad to me. And then the angel says, the next three are coming and they're even worse. What is happening upon the earth is th- these trumpets, you know, to, again, to try to visualize this in a literal way. There's lots of speculation and Truthfully, it could be any of these kinds of things, but we're talking about cataclysmic events happening upon the earth like we've never seen. Maybe some of it's the result of some nuclear exchange as, as, these, you know, as the horseman who takes peace from the earth goes out with his sword. Maybe there's a nuclear fallout which affects these things, even a third of the waters. Maybe it's some kind of volcanic eruption you know, can you imagine? it says that a mountain is like thrown into the sea. Maybe it will be some eruption that actually poisons the waters of the sea. And, you know, those things can be world changing. May, maybe it, it says, you know, a star falling from heaven. This might be some type of a meteor strike, right? Some asteroid storm coming and hitting the earth. These things are not impossible, We've not seen them, but th- th- these things can happen. The sun ends up being darkened. Is the sun itself going to change or will it be the result of these other events? When the asteroid hits the earth, will it actually alter the rotation of the earth or the axis of the earth so that the sun doesn't shine on the normal times that we're accustomed to? Will it be the dust cloud that comes from these events that just blackens the sky so that the sun is not able to penetrate? We, we can only speculate But we must understand that these words are given as warning. These words are given because these things are coming. These things are coming to the earth. And then the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet, of course, introduces the seven bowls. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 16. Let's take a look at a few of the bowls. Just in case you weren't convinced with the seals and the trumpets. There's a number of chapters in in between these judgments wherein John is given other specifics concerning the tribulation. But we're just focusing on these world events, these global events. Revelation 16 and verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, you are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due." And I heard another from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. We see a very similar type of judgment as the bowls are beginning to pour out, similar to the trumpets, only more intense, more destructive. Instead of a third of the sea, now the whole earth, all the seas are affected. Instead of some of the water, all the waters are affected. And yet the angel says, in all of this, O God, you are righteous and true. You are only doing that which is right, that which is just, that which is holy. You see, that's what the earth deserves. The fact that God stays his hand is the picture of his mercy and his patience. I mentioned to you last week, you know, we live in something of an insulated country. We don't see some of the horrors, the things that are being done, things that men are doing on the earth. But listen, as, and, and, and these things go on, and it's seemingly as if God has no notice. But God is, sees, sees it all. God is watching all. And God is, has a day, a day of the Lord, a day when he will come and judge the earth and he will set his government upon the earth and it will be a government of righteousness and truth and holiness. This is the picture the book of Revelation begins to give living color to. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is is done. That's verse 17 of Revelation 16. It is done. When that seventh bowl is poured, it's done. Even in judgment, God sets a limit. God sets a boundary. God has an expiration even in his wrath and judgment. This is why Jesus told us that in Matthew, back in Matthew 24 and verse 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. This day of God, it has a limit. In fact, Jesus says those days were shortened. God could have done more. But lest he destroy all men, lest he destroy even the elect, those coming to faith during the time of tribulation, for their sake, God puts a limit, a restraint, even on his day of judgment. It speaks of his mercy. It speaks of his patience and his long suffering. God does not delight in the death of sinners. God does not delight in judgment. God longs for all to come to salvation. That's why he stays his hand. That's why these things are not yet in motion because the grace of God continues to go out and appeal to any heart whosoever will believe because he wants to save as many from this day as he possibly can. The day of the Lord, the great and awesome day of the Lord. These are Old Testament references to what we're reading about. Both New and Old Testament talk about this day, not a 24 hour day, but a day. The day of these things taking place, talking about a time period where God is reestablishing His rule and order on the earth. Joel chapter 2 and verse 11. The Lord gives voice before His army, for His camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes His word for the day of the lord is great and very terrible who can endure it these passages are meant to cause a certain sense of accountability before a holy god there is a message in the scripture that reminds us that god is holy and just and is call, will one day call men to account you see that's what that's what contrasts the work of grace and salvation in our life. You know, we talk to one another, hey, hey, he got saved. Saved from what? Well, you know, saved from a destructive lifestyle, saved from his sin, true, true. But he's also been saved from the wrath and judgment of God that will one day be poured out upon sinners and unrepentant hearts. Salvation is more than just help for this life. Salvation is a rescuing from eternal and very literal destruction and judgment that will come. Those are the world events that will be a part of the tribulation. What about you and me? What about the church of Jesus Christ? I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through any of that. (laughs) I don't want to be here for any of those days. Does the scripture give any promise to us? Does the scripture give any hope that that the church will, will not have to go through that time of judgment and wrath? I believe the scripture does. And that's what I want to consider now. I want to talk about the church and its relationship to this day of the Lord, this time of tribulation. First, let me say that the age of the church, this age which you and I live in, where the gospel is going out and both Jew and Gentile are coming to faith, whosoever believes, much of this day that we live in was a mystery in the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophets did not discern God's full redemptive plan. The apostle Paul, that's why he says in the book of Ephesians, behold, I'm I'm now giving you the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. This church age that we're living in was a mystery, not foreseen, but God has now revealed it to his New Testament apostles, and we now declare it to you. So when we look at the Old Testament prophecies, and I want to specifically remind you of our Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks, and I would like to put the chart up behind me again. I want to remind you that Daniel, he didn't see this big insertion of the church age in the middle of that prophecy. You Remember this? I showed it a few weeks back. Daniel getting the instruction concerning the nation of Israel that there would be seventy sevens or 490 years of a prophetic future. We know that 49 of those have been fulfilled, Messiah was cut off, and now 2,000 years almost have gone by. It's as if God stopped the clock on the 70 weeks and inserted this age of grace, the age of the church, the mystery that Paul describes in the New Testament. But he is going to restart that clock and fulfill that last week, those last seven years, the tribulation, We know about the abomination of desolation in the middle of that week. And I believe, and and this is the the hope that we have in the New Testament church, is that God, when he restarts that final seven week, the church age comes to a close and he brings the church home to himself. He comes for his church and catches us away to, to save us from that time of wrath and tribulation. And we'll notice that the scriptures describing what we call often the rapture, Jesus comes for his church. Much different than the Jesus coming at the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus comes with his church, with his saints, to come and do business on the earth. Prior to that, we believe that he's coming for his church. I want to give you some scriptural consideration to help support this. Now, you might imagine this is a hotly debated topic. You know, are we going to be here? Are we going to be gone? Are we going to be maybe through half of it and out before the bad stuff? Well, I believe that we're going to be out because I believe the age changes. God restarts the clock and the church, the mystery is now removed. A couple of verses for you to consider. And again, we don't have time for detailed look, but enough to give you, I think, a solid hope. Um, Revelation chapter four, you're there in Revelation. You can go to chapter four with me. I talked to you about the structure of the book of Revelation. And I want to draw just your attention at the break. After the first three chapters, the letter to the churches, John in chapter four and verse one, he hears this. After these things, after what things? After the letters to the churches, after my instruction was what I was given to, to, to instruct the church. After these things, behold, I looked, and behold, a door standing open where? In heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. After what? after the church age so there's a there's a distinct transition here in the book of revelation okay john you're writing things out to the churches we want to speak to the church but after the, that i want you to now come up here your whole vantage point is changing john you're now coming up to heaven You're not being given letters to deliver to the churches on the earth. You're now coming up into heaven and you're going to watch from here what's coming to the earth. It's the after the church things that I want to show you now. So just in this transition in the book of Revelation, we believe that God is giving us a a idea of what happens to the church. It's a completely different perspective. John is invited up now through the door in heaven. And what he witnesses, all these things he's describing, all the things we read, he's seeing all that from heaven, and he sees it going out upon the earth, as if to say, John, a representative of the the church, one of the apostles of the church, he is now safe in heaven, watching God do business on the earth. A couple of other verses, and I'll have these for you on the overhead. I wanna talk about some of the promises that we know exist for us in the New Testament. And in the book of 1 Thessalonians, uh, the apostle Paul, encouraging the church there in verse chapter one and verse 10 says, encouraging to the church to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who what? Delivers us from the wrath to come. He goes on in chapter 5 and verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The promise to the New Testament church is that God has saved you, delivered you from wrath. You are not destined for God's wrath. Paul would elaborate to the Ephesians in Ephesians 5. When he gives instruction to husbands and how they're to value and take care of their wives, he likens the bride of Christ, the church, and how Jesus cares for her. Chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify, set apart, and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. The bride of Christ whom he gave himself for. You see, he took the wrath for us. The wrath of sin was paid at Calvary. The church is no longer destined for wrath. The church is destined for a glorious reunion with her groom. And that is Jesus Christ, to present her to himself, not to judge her with wrath. Can you imagine a groom sending his bride-to-be into the tribulation? Some of you husbands thinking, hey, not a bad idea. I wish my wife... No, don't think that way. We're called to love our wives the way Christ loves the church. This This is his bride. We are precious to the Lord. He paid for us with his blood. Not to send us into a time of wrath, but to deliver us from wrath. Again, I quote from the book of Revelation. Revelation 6, remember, that's when the judgments were coming out. And listen to what the people on the earth say. They begin to see these judgments. They begin to realize that God is actually... The vengeance of God is now upon the earth. And here's what they said in Revelation 6.16. They said to the mountains and rocks... Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? The inhabitants of the earth, they say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's not the bride of Christ crying out. The bride of Christ will be with her groom. You see, the tribulation is the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb poured out on his enemies. You can kind of do this, just imagine an an equation, if you will. Tribulation equals the great day of God's wrath. The church has been redeemed and not destined for wrath. Therefore, the church cannot be here in the tribulation because that promise would be null and void. If we you know if if the if the tribulation is the greatest time of god's wrath ever poured out upon the earth and the church is promised you you're not destined for wrath then you can understand it wouldn't make sense for the church to be here we believe that christ is coming for her church before for his church before the tribulation turn with me now to 1st Thessalonians chapter 4 and we'll finish up here today just reviewing some things we've talked about in the past, specifically the rapture. Okay, I, I, I think you can understand the, the logic. Yeah, it doesn't make sense that Jesus would leave his bride here for the, what we just read about in Revelation. But, but how's he going to get us out of here? I mean, what's the plan? How do we escape these things? Well, Paul would teach the church in Thessalon- Thessalonica some very specifics. I'm in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, and just read along with me. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. We've looked at this passage before, and you understand Paul is saying, hey, don't worry about those that have already passed away as though they've missed opportunity to be resurrected. They will be resurrected when he comes for his church. All together will be caught up the dead in Christ first, those who are already in heaven today, the loved ones that have passed away, we believe that they are with the Lord. Their spirits have gone to be with God. They have some type of form, spiritual form. They're with the Lord, but they're waiting to receive those resurrected, glorified bodies at his coming for the church. And so they'll, come, when he comes, they'll be raised. And the, those that are alive, they're, they don't have to die and be raised. They're just going to be instantly changed. A metamorphosis, an instant transformation and caught up in the air. This is Jesus coming for his church. Very different than Jesus coming to the earth with his church, coming to finish the battle of Armageddon. We'll look at that in weeks to come. The, uh, Paul would tell this to the, first, uh, to, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. You're not all going to die, but you're all going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Exactly what he told the church in Thessalonica he said the same thing to the church in Corinth, guys. Whenever, the, whenever he comes for his church, whoever's alive, boom, poof, twinkle of an eye, changed, transformed, caught up, snatched away, raptured, if you will, with the Lord in the air to ever be with the Lord. You've heard the book series, right, Left Behind. That's what it's talking about, this great ingathering, but the ones that are left behind, they go into a time of great tribulation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll finish up there today. Church, these are not easy things to, to study necessarily, not even easy things for me to teach. Uh, I prefer some Sunday mornings to be a little lighter, a little more, um, well, just a little different, <laughs> but I'll tell you, this is, this is what the scripture has for us. And I really believe that God wants us to live soberly. And, and, and we need, sometimes you just need to kind of step back and remember what it's all about. Remember what's really going on here. There is a battle raging for the souls of men. That's why we're here. That's what God is about in the earth. There is a battle raging for the souls of men. God wanting to rescue and save from what's coming because He so loved the world. And that's why He came. That's why He gave His Son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. And it's good to kind of get our balance back again. There's more to life sometimes than what we think there is. There, there's more at stake in our christian living in our generation and what we what we have opportunity to be a part of in the kingdom 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 Paul would write this second letter because he needed to clear up some confusion he told them about these things in his first letter he told them some things even when he was with them but then some false teaching came in and got them upset and they thought wow we're going through great tribulation did are we in the great tribulation did we miss the rapture? Did we get left behind? Is the rapture not coming till after the tribulation? You know, these were the questions that the Thessalonian church was struggling with because they were suffering great persecution. Paul writes to comfort them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, brethren, concern Verse 1. Brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, right? The rapture, the gathering. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. Maybe somebody's telling you that, you know, this is what we're teaching. Listen, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God, the abomination of desolation. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Paul is trying to reset the Thessalonian hope. They're a little confused because of the intense persecution. They're wondering, are we in the tribulation? Has the day of the Lord, has the day of Christ already started and we're in the midst of it? And Paul is saying, no, you're not in it. Remember when I, when I was with you, I told you of some very specific things that were included in the tribulation in this day of the Lord, this day of Christ. You don't need to be troubled As if you're there, because remember, I told you that there was going to be this Antichrist coming during that day. I told you there was going to be this abomination of desolation, just as Jesus taught his disciples. You, You see that none of that is happening. You're not in that day. Yes, you're suffering persecution. Yes, you're going through great trial. But you're not in that tribulation yet. You're not in that persecution. Because I told you before that that day, before that day comes... Christ will come for his church concerning his gathering us to him. You've not missed it. It's not here yet. You're just going through a difficult time. Hold on, hang in, walk in faith. God has not yet begun these events. He references this um, restrainer. He says, you know, this son of perdition who's going to be revealed in that day, he he can't yet be revealed until the restrainer, one who restrains, is taken out of the way. Now, a lot of speculation about what does that mean? What is that a reference to? I think for me, the most sensible understanding of that is the Holy Spirit living and working in and through the life of the church. Jesus said, we're the salt of the earth. We are the preserving agent in the earth the reason lawlessness is not allowed to advance to its extreme although it seems like it is advancing there is still a restraint can you imagine what men would do without any restraint and there's a time coming when whatever is restraining and i believe it's the church the holy spirit's present in his church presence in his church the body of christ working in the earth, the salt of the earth, preserving, maintaining. Imagine every Christian on the planet suddenly removed. Imagine that there is no more church. There is no more body of Christ. There are no more local gatherings like ours. There are, there are no politicians who know Jesus. There, are, there is no gospel work going out across the earth. Imagine what that world would look like. It would seem to me that lawlessness would then have opportunity to advance without any Restraint. Now, the Holy Spirit will still be active in the tribulation because we know that there are people that are going to come to faith, and that can only happen through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But it's not the same as His activity now in the age and life of the church. So I think the best interpretation is that which restrains the church is removed, and then the Antichrist is allowed to step onto the scene and lawlessness is able to advance without restraint. We all want to know who the, who the Antichrist is, but the scripture says he, you can't, he, he's not going to be revealed until the restraining force is taken away. If you're here and you, you know for sure who the Antichrist is, you might have been left behind because that's not a good sign for you. Quit trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist. Who is he? Where is he? It's okay to speculate, but don't, don't get carried away. All right, he goes on, Paul there in Second Thessalonians. We'll close here. look with me, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which He called you by our gospel, for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord, he he closes with prayer, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Paul concludes his thoughts by saying, guys, don't get discouraged. Don't get sidetracked. Stay in the word. Stay in the things that we've taught you and let them be a comfort to you. Now, just think about this logically. If Paul thought that the church was going to go through the tribulation, this wouldn't be very comforting at all. No, guys, you're not in the tribulation, but be of good cheer. You're going to be soon. Right? It wouldn't make any sense. There's no comfort in that. No, you're not in that. That's not your destiny. You, you stand, hold, you hold fast on the things that I've given you. Let these things be consolation and a good hope by grace. And then may the Lord establish you in every good work, every good word and work. Live for him. You may suffer persecution. You will definitely have trial and tribulation, but you're not in the tribulation. Live for him during this age of grace wherein God gives you opportunity to share the gospel. Be the salt of the earth. Let your light shine. Let us do justice to our generation and be the the church that God has called us to be and to be the Christians that God has called us to be. Knowing these things, we are sober and alert and watchful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of study in your word. Father, we acknowledge that these things are, in one sense, awesome and fearful. And yet, Lord, it is also an encouragement and a comfort to know that you have saved us, that you have delivered us from the wrath to come, that you loved us so much. Lord, we're just sinners, too. We're just those who have lived and done our own thing and lived in rebellion, Lord. None of us deserve your mercy or grace. But we're so grateful that you loved us enough to extend it. And Lord, we embrace it with thanksgiving in our hearts today. I pray that your church would be encouraged. I pray that they would be inspired. I pray that they would be instructed. And finally, as we close today, and just keeping your heads bowed with me one more moment, I do want to give opportunity if you're here today, and you need to respond to the Lord. You may be here today, and and you do not have that personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not part of the bridegroom that he's coming for. But the Lord is speaking to you, and you realize, "I I need Jesus. I need to... Ask him to forgive me of my sin. I need him to come into my life. I want to put my faith and trust in what he has done for me at the cross. I'd love to pray for you. If you're here today and you want to receive Christ, maybe you're here today and you need to recommit, rededicate your life to Christ. You know, maybe, maybe you're living something of a pretense. Maybe you're, you're Christian in name, but indeed in deed and heart, you, you know that you're not really living with the lord or for the lord maybe he's speaking to you today and maybe this is something of a sobering moment for you and you begin to realize this is this is not a game my life is not just some coincidence god has saved me with purpose and plan and i i'm 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 living my christian faith as if it's just a kind of a side note And the Lord is calling you to a deeper, fuller commitment in Him. I'd love to pray for you too. So if you're here today and you you want to receive Christ for the very first time, or you want to recommit, rededicate your heart to Him in earnest, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand where you're seated, and I'm going to pray for you as we close. Anybody here today, raise your hand, let me see you. Bless you. Hand over here on my left, on the right side. Anyone else? The Lord's speaking to you. You need Christ. You need to rededicate your life to Christ. He's knocking on your heart and he's saying, hey, you need, you need me. You need to come back to me. Anyone else? A hand back there. Any others? Just before I pray. And so, Lord, for these hands that have responded to you, I pray that you would meet them, Lord, with your love and your mercy. The scripture says, Lord, that you delight in mercy. You are a God of justice, judgment, and you will hold men and your creation accountable. But you are a God that is long-suffering and patient and generous in mercy, abundant in loving kindness. And so today... For these hearts that have responded, may they come to you with full confidence and assurance that you love to forgive, that you delight in mercy. And may they come and simply say, Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I put my trust in you and not in myself. And I ask you not only to forgive me, but to really change me from within. By your spirit, give me the grace and help I need to live the life you've called me to in this generation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.